is Buy-In, a valuation podcast from Horn Healthcare. What compensation trends do valuators anticipate post-pandemic? What are the hurdles to valuing physician arrangements post-COVID? Welcome to part two of our interview with Bill Mathias, a healthcare attorney with Baker Donaldson in Baltimore, Maryland. If you missed part one, please go back and listen to that episode. We'll pick up right where we left off. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, I, I'm, I'm, maybe, maybe I'm a little jaded having worked on the Stark Law for 20-some years um, and sort of wondering whether it will ever go away. Um, you know, fr- frankly, the, you know, the primary author of the law, Pete Stark, years ago said, if I'd known, if I'd known then what I know now, I never would have passed. Right. You know, push right. this law forward. Right. Um, but you know, I mean, again, I just, I think, I think there's definitely a need for um, changes to the Stark Law. I think you know, we'll 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 see what happens. We had the regulatory sprint that was you know, moving along, they've issued their proposed regs, they've gotten their comments, they were reviewing those, looking to make changes, we were hearing, you know, hopefully something was going to come out over the summer, and, you know, then the public health crisis hits. And so, you know, it, it, at this point, you know, it's not even clear what will happen to those regs, you know, because, frankly, you know, not only is CMS occupied, but the Office of Management and Budget, which has to approve any changes to those regs, is, right. is you know, overwhelmed. And so, you know, will we see any, any updates in the regs um, is, is just hard to know. Um, I think it's certainly needed. And I think, you know, as you say, this public health crisis is pointing out the, you know, sort of the, the hampering of innovation that the Stark Law does. I think we'll see, um, you know, hopefully some, some movement on that. I mean, in terms of legislation, depending on what happens with the election, right, who's in the White House, you know, and frankly, who controls Congress, right? right? Do, do those things change? And, you know, is, is the Stark Law going to be the thing that, you know, sort of captures people's attention? It's, you know, frankly, it often kind of flies under the radar. And so it'll be interesting to see whether this crisis can can cause um, it to sort of gain some traction um, and, and sort of point out some of the things that it's preventing from doing. Um, Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's, it's um, you know, unfortunately, politics, uh, I think, muddies the water some here uh, from what might be the, the, the most logical and rational way to, to address this. And I, not to sound cynical myself, but I, when you look at, um, you know, the government's um, return on investment related to enforcement around these laws, it's, it's an incredible return. Um, you know, I think the last number I saw was about for every dollar they invest in enforcement, they get $8 back. Um, and, you know, they've created an environment um, where, you know, really if I look back to the, you know, the, the Toomey case, created an environment um, where it just wasn't economically feasible. And I guess a lot of uh, systems uh, made the choice that, you know, just, it wasn't worth fighting. And so, so many, so many things settle and it created really this, this, this settlement mentality um, 
which, you know, I think sort of perpetuates itself. So um, I, I do, I do think that factors in as well. Um, so unfortunately I, I think that maybe uh, what's best from a policy standpoint, what's best for uh, patients and hospital operators, um, unfortunately isn't where we always land uh, with these kinds of things. And, you know, the Stark law has been in place a long time and a lot has changed uh, while it hasn't necessarily changed with it. Um, and it, it'll be interesting to see also, you mentioned the value-based exceptions and those seem to be on a regulatory sprint, I guess, as much as anything can uh, when, it, when we're talking about Washington, um, seem to be on that, uh, at least, you know, in, term, in relative terms, seem to be on somewhat of a sprint with the, the comments uh, being wrapped up in, in December. And um, I think, at the, you know, at the end of the year, um, you know, if you had asked me, I would have predicted that we would have had a, a final rule on that. Uh, if not before the election, uh, at least by the end of this year. And of course, that was taken completely off the table, I think, when uh, when COVID hit. Um, and now it seems to be kind of uncertain now uh, as to when we'll see uh, that that actually play out. So um, now you couple that with everything that's happened um, and the impact uh, around Stark with the waivers and, and kind of this, I think, what, what at least I, I anticipate a kind of a groundswell uh, of push to really reform uh, Stark post-COVID. It'll be interesting to see how that, along with, you know, value-based care, all, all play out. Um, uh, just to, to, to change gears maybe a little bit, um, I would, you know, mentioning value-based care and reimbursement um, and moving from, from fee-for-service, what, what is your take on the impact of COVID on alternative payment models, um, you know, gain sharing, ACOs, um, and, 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 and where we were headed with, you know, value-based care pre-COVID, how is that going to play out um, over the next few months? You know, that, that's an incredibly complicated issue um, because, you know, you have, you have some of the programs that CMS has set up, like, the CJR program and the next gen ACOs, you know, where they, where they relied on waivers um, of the fraud and abuse laws. And, and, you know, for those programs, frankly, you're getting some guidance. The CMS came out at the beginning of June um, and said, you know what, we're going to delay the start dates on some of these programs. Um, we're we're going to offer some flexibility um, we're going to try and do away with some of the downside risk in some of these programs. Um, you know, we may, we may change some of the quality reporting requirements and some of the metrics. And so, you know, for those programs, CMS is providing at least a little bit of guidance. But then you have, you know, out there in the market, you got these, you know, sort of traditional gain sharing arrangements that are kind of based on those OIG opinions from several years ago. And, and those, there's no, you know, you're sort of trying to fit in exceptions um, to SARC and kickback guidance. And with those programs, you know, you've got these agreements that are in place that, you know, you're in the middle of that are basing payments on, you know, meeting certain thresholds and, and all that stuff has just changed. Mm -hmm. and, it's, and it's how do you deal with that? From a from a start perspective, right? You're right. you know you're supposed to have set in advance, and 
you know, all, all these things. And so now you've totally changed those things. And, I, you know, that's, that's one of those things where you, you really do have to be a little bit creative to say, okay, we've got, you know, let's see which aspects of the current blanket waivers can we use and, you know, what changes do we make in those agreements before this public health emergency ends so that, you know, we have the flexibility to kind of respond, you know, that, that's kind of the technical side of the legal side to do it. Um, but then there's the business concepts of, well, do we even want to be in these kinds of arrangements right now when the market has turned itself on its end? Right. Um, and then, you know, from your perspective on evaluation, I mean, how, how do you guys think about these things, right? You're, you're trying to look at, you know, some of these quality measures and metrics and kind of sign off to say these, these incentive payments, you know, have a relationship to fair market value. And then all right. of a sudden, right. you know, the, the sand is moving underneath your feet. So how, how are you guys dealing with that? Well, I, I think you, you, uh, you, you nailed it. I think, I think we have to understand that, you know, we're in a situation where pre-pandemic data is potentially at least obsolete. Um, the post-pandemic data doesn't actually exist yet. So that will definitely create challenges on the valuation front. I mean, there could even be an argument that, at least in, in the near term, that parties may not have sufficient data to, to determine what's fair market value and, and won't in some cases until things stabilize or we have more post-pandemic data to work with. Um, I think one of the biggest things we're going to have from a from a valuation standpoint, particularly on the comp side, um, is whether, uh, you know, market survey data is still a good indicator of fair market value. Um, probably not in the near term, but what about long term? Um, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about how market shifts um, may permanently alter fair market value, the market, uh, the delivery system, what we think of as being commercially reasonable and, and several other things. So where does that land? And right now we just don't know. Um, you know, are we going to have to look gets at back, gets back to your favorite word, uncertainty, uncertainty. This conversation, right? It, it really, it really does, uh, you know, flow all through the conversation. Um, you know, for example, uh, you know, obviously cash flow just, you know, is something that's obviously, always a big part of, of any type of valuation. Um, you know, how much cash flow that a physician can generate impacts valuation. It impacts physician compensation. Um, maybe the exception there being you know, hospital-based specialties. Um, and I think because of this uncertainty that projecting revenue will be very challenging. Um, for example, an example, some states are requiring uh, COVID testing of all patients before surgery. Well, how does that, how does something like that impact volume and how long will that last? It's, you know, it's very difficult or impossible to say. Um, increase in PPP cost, PPE costs uh, is impacting cash flow. How long will that be the case? Um, you know, right now there's this near-term volume catch-up, um, but when does that level out? Um, how long, if there's a backlog of cases, how long will it take to catch up? Um, you know, so it's just question after bills on, on question um, that's going to make uh, uh, 
determining value and answering these those kind of questions, I think very challenging. We talked about telemedicine. Um, you know, what is the long-term impact um, from that perspective? You know, Rob, probably we don't know a lot of, about that. Uh, so that that creates challenges. Another area is payer mix. Um, payer mix um, will definitely be a concern from a valuation perspective. Uh, I think there's a likelihood of a, a massive payer mix shift given the spike in unemployment. Uh, and, you know, that's, that's not something we typically see. Um, you know, payer mix, for the most part, is fairly stable over time. So I think that's another thing that's going to create uncertainty. Uh, a really big one in my mind uh, that I think we have to consider, particularly when we're looking at valuation, uh, is the potential Medicaid impact. Um, as we know, Medicaid is the largest single item in most state budgets. Um, and with the spike in unemployment, Medicaid roles will likely expand, um, potentially dramatically in some cases. And assuming that, what's, what's the potential that um, states begin to cut Medicaid benefits? And how does that begin to impact our ability to forecast revenue? And ultimately, how does that impact compensation? Um, to me, that could be a very big issue to wrestle with and, and certainly something that you know, we can't ignore. No, I think so. And I think, you know, hospitals in particular are going to struggle with that because um, they get they get the Medicaid patients that show up in the emergency room right. and they need to be able to treat them and they need to have doctors who are willing to treat them. And, you know, as, as Medicaid rolls start to swell and Medicaid reimbursement drops even further, you're going to have more and more doctors who say, I just am not doing it. I'm not taking Medicaid patients. And then, you know, where do the hospitals go? You know, and, right. then, and right. then we get, and then we get these valuation questions where the hospital says, well, I really need to hire this doctor to treat this, to treat this group of Medicaid patients. And you look at it from the valuation side and say, well, but if they're going to treat a bunch of Medicaid patients, then, can I, what, can I pay them? Because they're not going to generate very much cash flow. But yet, right. you know, you look at the survey data and you say, well, to get this kind of position, I got to pay this, right. this much money. Right. And, and we get caught in those, you know, kind of struggles of, of and, what and to the, do with the payment. And, and that, and that, that's where I think we may see things like what the concept of commercial reasonableness may be altered. Um, from what we might have considered commercially reasonable pre-COVID. Um, you know, there's always a concept around that there's, in many cases, um, an acceptable loss when hospitals employ physicians, particularly certain specialties in certain markets. Um, and so, you know, that very well, you know, our idea of that could certainly shift. And that's a very subjective term and not something that we've got a lot of, you know, good definitions from the government around and we've we've had to you know do our best to to determine what that is in many instances we'll take a quick break stay tuned for more with bill mathias buy-in is brought to you by horn healthcare for over 60 years and with more than 70 dedicated accounting and advisory professionals horn healthcare is a decidedly different firm find us online at hornllp.com and we're back Let's dive right in. Are hospitals really in the business of generating revenue through physician practices, or are they really part of the bigger mission of the hospital overall? And I think 
when we deal, if we get into more of those kind of situations where that gap um, uh, grows or that loss gets bigger and bigger, um, you know, what is the, where's the bright line there? And how do you defend against accusations that those arrangements are um, are not commercially reasonable just based on the face of, of the, the size of the losses there that are very different now in a post-COVID environment? Those are things that, you know, that are going to be difficult to, to, to answer, and um, they're going to be challenging. I think we're going to absolutely see some of that um, as we move forward. Um, let me switch gears just a little bit um, and, and ask you this. What, what will the physician employment acquisition market look like post-pandemic? Or do you see um, a real uptick in physician practices being acquired by hospitals and health systems? Um, or do you think uh, we'll see kind of the other direction that physicians – um, decide that they want to be masters of their own destiny. And, um, you know, especially going back to some of the stuff we mentioned earlier where um, hospitals may be reluctant to guarantee compensation to, to put physicians to protect themselves, to put, them, put the physicians more on an on a eat-what-you-kill-or-at-risk kind of model. If we see that shift, we see the physicians go the other way. Um, I'm curious to, to get your take on that. Yeah, so I mean, I think I think there's a couple things there. I think um, looking at sort of the question of how will hospitals want to engage physicians? Um, you know, will will they want to do employment or will they do some kinds of personal services arrangements? I, I think one of the things that will that will come out of this public health emergency is you'll see even more hesitancy. To, to use these personal services kind of arrangements because they just don't have the same flexibility that the employment model does under the Stark Law. And so I think we'll see more of a push to put doctors into employment agreements as opposed to some of these other personal services arrangements that, that folks have, have been using more and more of and, and have sort of started to get more comfortable with in the last couple of years. Um, in terms of physician practice acquisition, I mean, I, that, that market has, you know, ground to a halt for the time being. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, no, none of those deals are, are moving right now right. that I know of. No, um, right. But I think, you know, as, as we get, you know, as you said, post-pandemic, you know, we get to a vaccine and, you know, the surgeries, elective surgeries start to normalize and, you know, patients aren't scared to go into their doctor's office. And frankly, doctors aren't scared to have patients come into their right, office. Right. Right. Um, that I think that there's going to be real opportunities. And, and I think this is across the entire healthcare spectrum. You know, that what happens when you have a shock to the system like this is there's winners and losers. Right. And, you know, there's going to be physician practices that just frankly can't withstand the, the economic shock of this. I mean, despite, right. despite, you know, the CARES Act money that went out and some of the PPP money that may be available to doctors and, and that, I still think that 
um, you're going to have a lot of doctors who are saying, you know what, that was too much of a shock and I just can't deal with it. Um, right. and, and so going to be looking. So, so I think there's going to be real opportunities for physician practice acquisitions to be out there and, and rolling doctors into employment arrangements. Um, and, you know, some of that will be the hospitals as, as the hospitals, um, you know, sort of get their bottom line straightened out. And, and frankly, within the hospital market, there's going to be winners and losers. And, you know, some of the hospitals are, are surviving this really well and, and others are not. And some of those hospitals are, there's going to be hospital acquisitions that go on. And so I think once, once some of that starts to play itself out, then there's going to be more um, stability and, and capital in the, in the market to, to go after some of these physician acquisitions. And, you know, as we talked about, you know, going back to, to the beginning of this conversation, we have the insurance companies um, right. who are going to play a role in that. Um, and so, you know, I think, I think there'll be, I think there'll be a lot of movement to, um, we'll, we'll see a lot of activity around physician practice acquisitions um, and moving, moving doctors into employment arrangements. Um, and I think, you know, sort of, turning that to you is I frankly see one of your, the challenges that the valuation industry is going to have is how do we, how do we deal with these? Um, You know, yes, everybody wants to acquire these physician practices, but how do you value a physician practice that's got this big donut hole for, you know, three months where they had zero revenue um, and, and, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you deal with some of those issues? Yeah, those are going to be the, the difficult things to deal with for sure. Um, you know, I, you know, I think one thing that we may have to do, um, you know, is look at alternate scenarios. Um, and, you know, that's not something that we haven't done in the past. Certainly we've run into situations where there was that, and I use that word again, uncertainty, um, but I think that will drive the need to to run different scenarios, uh, and then then you've got to uh, appropriately uh, adjust those for risk and apply risk um, to that based on you know what you know. It, you know, evaluators. You know, we never have perfect data. Um, we always uh, you know work with what we have, and I think this this is no different. Although I think it's it's certainly probably the most challenging environment that I've ever seen from a valuation standpoint, and I've been doing this a little over 20 years, um, you know, it always comes with its challenges. It's valuation is very much an art and and not a science. So um, that's, there's always a lot of uh, professional judgment and subjectivity that goes into it. And ultimately from valuation standpoint, you know, you, you work with what you have um, and you, you try to, get it the best data you can get and you make assumptions based on reason and judgment. Um, and you know, you apply those methods and you try to, um, come up with as many, uh, methodologies as you, that the data will allow. And then you have to synthesize that data and you sort through it. And ultimately that, that gives you a value. Um, no doubt it will, it will definitely, be more challenging in the coming months um, and for the probably at least in the near term as things start to stabilize. I do think 
ultimately, though, uh, you know, I think we, we're in a lot of turmoil right now um, that's just uh, related to an election year. You know, we've had a very contentious political cycle overall that I think just kind of just layers the, the uncertainty and uh, complexity to, to everything. Um, and healthcare in particular, I think it's kind of interesting that up until this point, you know, there was a consensus, and I've said this many times myself, that, you know, healthcare was sort of immune to, you know, economic cycles and downturns. And um, that, that's no longer, I no longer hold that view. Um, I think that uh, this, this, this pandemic has altered that uh, forever. Um, healthcare is not immune. Um, when you throw things like social distancing in there, um, that it, it has a tremendous impact, as we've seen, on on the healthcare market. Um, and again, I keep going back to the word uncertainty. But I think I think there are ways to address it. I do think ultimately, I think we have to keep in mind that the pandemic has not eliminated many of the healthcare needs in our communities. Um, people are still getting sick, um, and in, in many cases, it's just simply delayed medical treatment. So I think I would end it with saying at some point, we will get back to normal, um, and with maybe a big caveat that some elements of healthcare delivery may be permanently altered, um, but I think it'll be the job of evaluators to, to tease that out when projecting cash flow, things like clinical volumes that are going to be necessary um, to determine fair market value. Um, looks like, uh, Bill, this has been a, an outstanding conversation. I've learned a lot, but unfortunately we've come to the, the end of our time today. It's, it's been wonderful to talk to you, to, to hear your perspective. Um, and I'll say again, how much, um, I appreciate your, your time and your insight today. No, this has been great. Um, you know, I think, I think these are the kinds of issues that you and I live day in, day out, and we could, we could talk for hours about this. So um, I, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you today. Absolutely. And, and thanks to our listeners for tuning in today. This is Rudd Blumentritt from Horn. Until next time. Thank you for listening to Buy-In, a podcast from Horn Healthcare. Buy-In is produced by Horn LLP. Stay tuned for more episodes coming soon on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. For more about Horn, visit hornllp.com.